and welcome. You're listening to No Lasting City, probably the second best podcast in the world. I'm Matthew Johnston, and with me today is Andrew Young and Young Toby. This podcast is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church, and our goal with No Lasting City is to distract you from the mundane and to ravish your minds with the glory of God manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our guest today is Samuel Say. Samuel is a Ghanaian Canadian who lives in Brampton, a city just outside of Toronto in Canada. Samuel's committed to addressing racial, cultural, and political issues with biblical theology and attempts to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and you can find his writing at slowtowrite.com. Samuel's works have been featured on ministries like Desiring God, Founders Ministry. He's appeared on the Relatable Podcast with Ali Stuckey. You'll find some of his writings there on the Statement on SocialJustice.com, as well as many other well-known organizations. Samuel, we are so glad that you've joined us on this third episode of No Lasting City. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope it, And I hope after this it won't be your final uh, episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> we we counted an immense joy and privilege to have you on, brother. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Samuel, tell us about your website, slowtowrite.com. What was the motivation underlying your work there? Um, I started a blog in um, 2015. Uh, actually, next month, I think, makes it uh, six years, which is shocking to me. I didn't think I'd write more than three articles, uh, never mind, uh, I guess, now almost 200. Um. But it started because around that time, Black Lives Matter had become prominent in the U.S. with the Ferguson riots. And then you had a chapter of Black Lives Matter also emerging here in Toronto. Um, and a lot of my a lot of my friends um, in Canada, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, whom I had I had grown up with, in a sense, over the last decade uh, by that time, um, when I became when I first became uh, reformed in my um theology, um, there were really not many people in my circle who were um, you know, black and reformed. So online, I, I developed friendships with people across um, you know, the UK and in America. Anyway, I mentioned that because as Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, which I know we'll get into a bit later on, as was emerging, a lot of my friends who I believed had biblical theology, all of a sudden were talking about how their pastors are racist because they are not... Um, embracing Black Lives Matter and talking about systemic racism in the church and outside the church. And that was really concerning me. Um, I didn't really quite understand what was going on. I knew it was worldly. I knew it was their ideas were not being pushed by, were not being influenced by scripture. Um, but I ended up studying it. I went back to study, you know, um, slavery, segregation, uh, read, um, read Thomas Sowell, read, um, um, read um, Shelby Steele, read, um, a lot of their uh, critical race theories, um, read the civil rights movement, read as much as I possibly could so I could form my understanding on what was happening. And then I'd reach out to my friends saying, hey, guys, uh, what, you know, what you're pushing is not biblical theology. It is worldly philosophies. Um, but then I got kind of tired of calling every single one that I knew uh, about it. So I said, you know what? It's best for me to just write on this so that I can just send this article to anybody who would care um, to think through these issues. Um, and that's why I created my blog, and um, it's been growing since then. Wonderful. Thanks for that. Yeah, appreciate the way in which you truly are slow to write and careful to write, and you write with such clarity, and I know many, many people uh, enjoy what you write. So, Samuel, you were 
born in Ghana or born in Canada to Ghanan parents or? No, I was born in Ghana. Uh, and then when I was 10, I moved here uh, with my family. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we've been watching Canada quite closely as we see some of our brothers uh, and sisters going through a hard time there, um, facing imprisonment for gathering and, and those kind of things. Um, but just appreciate all your work. Um, and uh, I believe Andrew has a question for you. Yeah, Samuel, we've, um, I guess, to in New Zealand, I've got an article in front of me. It was uh, written in 2019, so a couple of years ago. And it was written by, uh, he, then he was the Justice Minister of New Zealand. His name's Andrew Little. Um, and it's a copy of his speech to the United Nations Human Rights Council. And he, he refers to um, some things he sees in New Zealand. And he refers to the op- uh, oppression of Māori, uh, the impacts of colonisation, um, he refers to the entrenched structural racism that he sees here. He says our LGBT communities, they face discrimination, and he refers to inequalities, racism, and bias in the education system. And he argues that there's entrenched bias in the justice and health systems. And so I guess we're we're starting to hear these terms and phrases throughout our society. And so I was just Wondering if you could tell us what they mean and um, what the underlying philosophy that those those kind of phrases are are showing. So what yeah, what's under undergirding those kinds of thoughts? Mm-hmm. Um, I am of course not as familiar with uh, New Zealand's history as I am with Canada's or America's, but I know a little bit. I know that uh, like most Western uh, nations. Um, you know, you had indigenous uh, people there and then the, um, you know, the Europeans, or I think in this case, the, the British um, colonized, um, you know, the, the nation and ended up colonizing the people there. And we would all agree that is, um, you know, that's oppression, that, that, you know, there's a lot of injustice uh, within all of that. I think we'd all agree with that. But with those kind of buzzwords, where they're really, they're not really addressing the historical, not well, at least not primarily addressing the historical oppression and injustices. They're addressing what they believe is oppression today by the very system that New Zealand or America or Canada, but of course, in this particular case, that this the very system right now that um, is being implemented by the New Zealand um, um, you know, people just in, in your nation. And, you know, so in that very system, which is why she, you know, the, um, I'm forgetting the person's name, but they mentioned, um, they mentioned the school system, education, they mentioned disparities. That's all to say, and this is really coming from a, a concept called critical race theory, which basically says that the very system of the West, um, you know, and usually being part of the West, that the very system of impartiality, the system of um, apparent neutrality or liberty is all a manipulative tool from white men to not only overtly oppress um, non-white people like the Mari um, several hundred years, years ago, but even now the very system is now, I would say not overtly, but covertly manipulating them into uh, oppression uh, or embracing oppressive ideas. So, um, so when they say things like the disparities, well, that's because they believe as in, 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 uh, in with their, the, so with critical race theory, you have two concepts that are really shaping 
um, that. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into it later on too, but these two concepts are called Marxism and postmodernism. Marxism basically, in very sim- simplified ways, basically says that you have societies that are made up of um, an oppressor and the oppressed. In this case, they would, you know, when it comes to racial issues, they would say that um, the Mari are the oppressed just by their their identity right now, and that the oppressor would be the white people, um, you know, in 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 your nation. And then when it comes to um, they mentioned the LGBTQ, they would say that also the system also inherently is oppressive to the LGBTQ. Sorry, the LGBTQ. Sorry, I can't say it for properly. It's a lot of it's a, it's a lot. There's a lot to say there, but the LGBTQ. Um, you know, people in New Zealand, they are oppressed by, they would say, the cisgender, um, straight people in the nation. But all that really just comes down to a rejection of biblical principles, a rejection of the of the uh, the principles that um, establish the West as it is. Um, you know, so so you have with that in mind, they then have the idea that this spirit in of itself. If you have disparities between groups of people based on just what they look like or gender or things like that, that in of itself proves injustice because in their mind, um, it's, it's that's just a result of the oppressive class or the, the oppressive group um, manipulating the system in overt ways, overt meaning hidden ways that you can't really um, tell right away without... Um, seeking wisdom from the oppressed people. Um, you know, so the so disparities in and of itself are inherently signs of discrimination. And that uh, you think you mentioned something about um, bias against the LGBTQ people. That was because since they reject biblical principles, just the, the, um, the historical traditional ideas within uh, New Zealand of just that being wrong, as in homosexuality or transgender. Sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm talking too fast. Transgenderism becoming or being sinful. That in of itself then means that the system, which initially agreed with that, the biblical biblical truth, is in of itself then oppressive against um, those people. Mm, thank you. That's very very helpful. One thing, Samuel, that uh, I'm sure you've found in in your experience and. Um, I know many people who've had their eyes open to the dangers of critical race theory, intersectionality, critical justice theory, is that sometimes it can be hard to put your finger on. Uh, originally, when you hear it, um, by um, very uh, the practical outworking of it, you, you can be racist if you seek to critique it. You can be racist if you seek to address it. Um, it's kind of set up with a it's it's perfect. Uh, arrangement to to prevent anyone truly seeing it what it is for what it is and um help help us understand uh for those who perhaps are hearing these terms and you just did a great job in unfolding uh those uh, buzzwords that we're hearing can you break down um uh, social justice for us things like the woke ideology critical race theory for those who are hearing the terms perhaps for the first time or have heard them and now seeing them uh, more and more out there, just just so uh, people might be able to begin to, to put their finger on what exactly these terms mean. Yeah. 
So yeah, you mentioned um, social justice, critical race theory, woke ideology. Those are all just different words for the same ideas. Um, and what they really mean in a very simplified uh, form is that the West, or again, in your case, New Zealand, is irredeemably oppressive against um, uh, non-white people, against um, um, women or transgender people, homosexual people, um, against uh, immigrants, against disabled people, um, against several kinds. And, and this idea um, is also sometimes referred to as um, I'm so down a word. It's because I'm always talking too fast and I always slur my words, but it's intersectionality. Many people have heard those terms before. It's the idea that you have uh, multiple identities, which could actually either make you an oppressor or um, a member of the oppressed group. Um, but th these ideologies teach that um, the West, or again, particularly New Zealand, is, is systemically racist, that the very founding principles, especially the legal um, the legal aspects of your system is racist and it can only be anti-racist if you destroy the system and you reform it, which is why it wouldn't surprise me if you also have the same ideas being pushed over here too about defunding the police, abolishing uh, prisons, and uh, a number of those kind of uh, rhetoric is because they're very much against the system. So they might say they're against things like sexism and racism, but particularly they're against the system itself that they believe is racist or sexist. Um, I, um, there's one more point I wanted to mention there. I'm forgetting what it was, but, um, oh, forgive me. Sorry. Just go ahead. Maybe, maybe no, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. It's been somewhat of a challenge, although we want to be patient, uh, with others because the Lord a is very patient with us. And also, these are tricky things to uh, initially understand. And then we have the whole idea of the leftist woke mob uh, fear of being called a racist. I mean, no one wants to be called a racist. And, and, and if you begin to uh, speak into this, it's very easy to be viewed uh, as a racist and the like. But... One thing that has been extra tricky at times is when you have pastors or uh, Christians who have imbibed some of this ideology and then, or maybe not even wholesale imbibed it, some have, but not those that have, have, have imbibed it altogether, but you have some who just seem a little bit unwilling to call a spade a spade as it were and i remember you wrote an article uh maybe 12 months ago now maybe longer i don't know and it was the head the, the title was why the reformed community is somewhat weak on on wokeness and now we want to be careful obviously not to talk in broad brush i have many good friends in the reformed community who themselves are asking the same question that you were and are asking, they're saying, hey, why are so many in the reform community, capital R, um, why do they seem a little weak or hesitant? Is it, is it because of unawareness or, or, or what is it? Can you talk to, a, talk to us a little bit about that? Um, again, it's not everyone because every 
every denomination, every group, every movement has its weaknesses. And we're speaking in a very broad brush, but you obviously identified it enough uh, to write an article about it. I- I've observed that. I know others have observed that. So talk yeah. to us a little bit about that. I think there are uh, several reasons why. A few years ago, a man that I really, really admire and respect um, asked me for his opinion. Uh, he's a prominent um, reformed um, thinker and asked me about asked me for my opinion on an article um, that he had written and the article basically said that every church should have um, should be multi-ethnic should be you know diverse and that if it's not then something is wrong I remember saying well what Bible like what text in the Bible can you point to um, to say that now, there's nothing wrong with saying that ideally you'd want that. That's fine. But if when you say that every church should look that way, well, then you're implying that if it doesn't look that way, then it's wrong or sinful. So you have a text. That's all I asked, just what text do you have? And he said, well, I, I don't know. It just seems good. I, I mentioned that because the person had not even think about um considering that, hey, do you have a biblical authority to say something like this? So I think even wise, sincere people sometimes are so captured by what is being said in their culture or by many Christians, they don't really think through their own theology on these on these issues. So I think that's one of that, just unawareness and ignorance, in a sense. I think there's also um, a, um, I'll call it, I call it a Christian guilt, uh, which is similar to a white guilt in that you have a lot of people, you have a lot of Christians who are very familiar that in Canada, the UK, America, and probably New Zealand as well too, when, you know, in, pa- in past times when you had real oppression against, um, you know, either the Maori or black people or things like that, a lot of people in the church did not do as they should have. They did not they did not stand for justice and mercy. So I think because of that, there's a group of people today who so eagerly do not want to repeat the sins and failures of our forefathers. Um, and and that eagerness, eagerness is making them um, focus more on not being, not, not repeating people's sins instead of obeying God's word. So I think also one other aspect more than well, there's a few more. So stop me whenever. Um, no, keep maybe. going, brother. The other thing is, for a long time within the church, um, especially in North America, um, and again, I imagine it's similar there too. There's been this um, this desire to refrain from the culture. Uh, many Christians, as an overreaction to the fundamentalist um, in North America, especially in the U.S. In the 80s and 90s, you had the moral majority in the U.S., and you had the Jerry Falwells and Liberty University and groups like that who were preaching politics more than Christ. And that was causing havoc uh, in the church, as even today, there's still some sense of that happening as well. That led to a lot of Reformed people who were naturally so passionate about preaching the gospel and saying, look, the issue here is the gospel that they ended up avoiding worldview issues. And I, I remember seeing that the beginnings of that, like 
15 years ago when I first became a Christian, where um, as I was becoming reformed, you didn't have a lot of resources on a biblical worldview for Christians. It was good that we were focusing on the gospel, but we had to preach the whole counsel of God. And I think that was being avoided. Well, that wasn't just an issue in churches. It was also an issue in homes where kids were being raised and they were not being t- taught to, to consider what the Bible says about justice, what it says about what it really means to love your neighbor in politics. Um, I always, I often, I often say that if you say not into politics, you're really saying you're not into justice. Um, now I'm not saying that everyone should be a political junkie. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a very firm way to pursue justice in our world is to be involved in politics one way or another. Doesn't mean that again everyone should be a politician or anything like that. You can just just by how you vote, how you encourage people to think about not telling them what to do, but just considering what God calls you to do with your vote. Um, so, so that then leaves a vacuum where someone has to teach people how to think about justice. And that, that becomes the jobs of people's, you know, teachers, professors, their friends. Um, and then you have the culture shaping how Christians are thinking about justice instead of scripture. So I think that's the um, third reason. The bigger reason I think, um, is, is, um, a, form of seeker sensitivism within the reformed church it sounds shocking but i know that you have the the young wrestling reform you know movement it really came out of a came out of a an opposition against the seeker sensitive movement or the or, or the emergent movement and yet we've kind of ad- adopted a lot of their thinking which is we've in in the Around the year when I maybe 08 to 2012, you had guys like me who had become reformed, as in black guys becoming reformed. That was a huge thing happening. I remember all my friends and there are books being written about what's, you know, why are so many young, not not to complain, but you just like, well, what's happening? That you had so many young black people who were embracing reformed theology. Um, it was growing in Africa. It was growing, you know, Vadi Bokum, you know, and, Thib- and Thibidi, and a lot of other black uh, thinkers were, um, you know, were um, leading many other young black men like myself to become reformed. Um, and at some point in 08, like I said before, I was the only black reformed person I knew of in my area. Within two, three years, <laughs> there was like hundreds. Um, so you had a huge change. And I think when that happened, because we had not established a biblical worldview in so many churches, well, for many young black people, we were raised not necessarily with critical race theory, but with a different worldview than many of our white peers. So when we came to these churches, we were united with the gospel. But as Vadi Bokum says, you had fault lines that were not yet revealed in that we had different views on justice and politics. So you had pastors preaching you know, um, the gospel, which is great, but you weren't, te- they were, not all of them were teaching um, politics or biblical worldview or history. Um, so, um, so then finally when Black Lives Matter emerged, and then you had so many young black Christians having different views than their white pastors or their white um, uh, church members, it led to this fault lines being more and more um, apparent. So I think all those reasons are why you have the, um, you know, and, and, and sorry to, f- to finish the point when 
that happens, then you see so many young, sorry, so many um, um, pastors or church leaders who now realize that all the young black people that they've um, they've been discipling are now on the verge of wanting to leave the church because they're not, you know, they believe the pastors are not being anti-racist. So then if you are a pastor, what do you do? You become more afraid of speaking the truth because you might lose members or you might not be seen as welcoming to black people in the church. So I think these are one of the reasons why um, you have um, a, um, a number of reform evangelical leaders embracing critical race theory. Mm. Thank you, Samuel. I can remember being at seminary and sitting under the preaching of Thabiti Anwabile. And we've seen Thabiti really change and imbibe uh, critical race theory and this whole ideology. There's been others too. What do you think leads to that and, and why? I mean, maybe the answer is literally what you just explained, but specific individuals uh, who leaders, you know, who uh, preach the gospel, preaching the truth. I, I think of Thabiti and others who it's quite glaring the contrast between how they once viewed the world and how they do now. Yeah. Um, I remember, I'm forgetting, I don't know if it was the 08 or 2010 um, T4G conference where Thibidi had, um, I'm forgetting exactly what he said, but he shared some words on um, the racial issues. And I remember, I know exactly where I was walking to school, and I remember listening um, to this panel discussion and, and saying amen, amen, and being so blessed by what Thibidi was saying. Um, Everything he was saying then, he would now label as racist today. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I he's a better man than I am. I'm not um, by any means, um, you know. I, I know, I know. Again, he's he's had a big influence in my life. I have some of his books, but unfortunately, he's deviated. Of course, and not just him. Many other men that I know and love um, have deviated from um, biblical theology on these issues, and. I don't want to get into a particular person's mind as to why, but it really just comes down to not believing what the Bible says on certain things and agreeing with what the culture says on certain things. And when you start saying that people are to repent for sins that they've not committed, <laughs> that is some scary stuff. Um, so, um, so yeah, unfortunately uh, there are many guys like him. Uh, I, you know, not to mention more names, but, David Platt, you know, uh, and many other men um, that are, again, um, preaching the gospel. But when it comes to the issue of justice and racial issues, um, they're instead barring mm. uh, what the culture says. Mm, mm, thank you. We have here in New Zealand what's called special character. And so whether you're a school from an Islamic background or whatever it may be, Christian background, you can hold to your special character and still function as a school. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. And here in our community, we have a we have a great Christian school and there's other great Christian schools around our nation that hold to the special character. One thing that's occurring at the moment is the New Zealand National Certificate of Education, which is called the NCEA. It's currently being revised to give equal value to Maori knowledge and belief. So, what is meant by that is giving equal value to all 
their ideologies like creation, etc. Um, what do you think of this and what are the challenges for Christian schools as they navigate this critical race theory, social justice, work ideology? Is this, has it already been uh, implemented or is it being proposed? It's in the moment of being revised. There is a strong push at the moment by the present government um, to to really uh, implement a lot of this uh, ideology into schools. Um, it's quite concerning um, because you can affirm students in groups as being made in the image of God without affirming cultural values that are not true. And that, um, um, I'm forgetting how you phrased it, but you know, what they're attempting to, what they're trying to do, um, is concerning because then really, they're, they're really pushing schools to affirm a particular view. You have a basically government sanctioned view as to what you're supposed to say. Now, for many people, it may seem just generic. Well, um, indigenous culture includes a view of ethics, a view of of creation, as you implied, um, and just a theology, which is contrary to biblical truth. So really then it becomes um, by, in their mind, trying to affirm indigenous culture, they end up dismissing Christian culture or Christian truth. So it'd be one thing if they were simply saying, well, let's, you could just explain, as many teachers do, many schools do, what some people believe about certain things. Um, and if there's maybe there is a way for teachers to still, um, you know, follow, I suppose, the, the, uh, the ruling while not affirming it as truth, but simply just teaching it as here's what other people say on these issues on creation. Um, you know, for example, many Christian schools teach what atheists uh, believe about, you know, the world and things like that. But it's one thing if you're just teaching one perspective, incorrect pers perspective, instead of saying, well, here's what you need to believe about it. And here in Canada, we have something similar. Just to show you the progression and the dangers of all this, um, where now every curriculum, we have an anti-racist curriculum, a critical race theory curriculum as well. And basically... They, they, in um, I'll, I have internal documents from my local school, my local school board, and um, in their curriculum, they talk about you know obeying um, the seas and the sky and and um, singing songs, you know, which would basically worship uh, like paganistic songs. So it, when you when the government pushes this naturally it leads to this being affirmed as truth at the expense of real biblical truth uh, being taught in Christian schools. And not just that, it leads to then other things being taught as well too. Because if, if they can, if they can uh, force you or compel you, as in the government, compelling you to teach certain perspectives, well then naturally they'll then can force you to teach other things too about sexuality, transgenderism, um, and a number of other um, issues as well. Thank you so much. Great answer. 
Tobes, you ask your question. I was actually just thinking of a different one. Um, in in the New Reformation, I, I believe it's that, uh, Shai Lin is, is talking about one of his friends um, having an issue with Jonathan Edwards and, and him having slaves and, and things like that. Uh, can you just, what are your thoughts? Well, who's your favorite Puritan? Who's your favorite reformer? Um, and is it an issue that they've got um, sinful pasts? And, and how do you deal with that? Can I be frank? Yes. That person, if they have an issue with Jonathan Edwards owning slaves, they should have an issue reading their Bible. Um, the Bible is full of men who own slaves. Abraham owned slaves. Um, you know, they should have an issue with the book of Philemon. Um, I mean, you have a number of men who own slaves and you also have a number of men who were just sinful period. Um, you know, so, and you asked me about who's my favorite Puritan. Well, it's Jonathan Edwards. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, it, see, this will sound maybe strange. I had relatives who were, um, uh, relatives who were slaves. If I meet Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to give him a big hug. He's a godlier man than I am. Um, you know, we've made slavery this unique. Wonderful, if I can. Well, yeah, I'm trying to watch my words here, but we've made slavery this almost unpardonable sin uh, when it isn't the case at all. Um, you know, we give we give more grace to people who murder their babies today than we give to people who owned slaves in the past, even when they. It may sound shocking even when they treated him kindly. Edwards, um, he, I believe was him who released some of his slaves and they refused to go because of how much they loved him because he was a kind man. See, regardless of, of, of how slavery was wrong and is wrong, those Puritans still believed in the Bible and they believed in what Paul said, that masters are to treat their slaves you know, with love, right? So he was loving to their, to their, to, to his slaves. Um, but in terms of someone at the same time, though, it doesn't mean, I know someone, it can be hard for them to, to, you know, after knowing uh, about, you know, Edwards being a slave owner, being hard for them, I can understand that. It's one thing if it just troubles them. It's one thing if it makes them think less in a, in a sinful sense of, um, of Edwards. But again, now no one's going. No one will write about me when I when I die. Uh, I'm sure I'll be easily forgotten. But people will learn things about me that will make them realize that yes, I'm a sinner. Um, Edwards is a sinful man, um, and you know. So about that friend, you know, it's there isn't a single hero in this world um, who is without sin in 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 Christ. There's a single hero in Christ. Um, who is uh, without sin, especially at the time when it's a cultural sin as well, too. So um, I am, I in many ways, when I when I read Puritans and I know they have their own slaves, it may seem weird, but I rejoice more in Christ than that man. You know, in heaven you will have slave owners, slave owners, and and um, sl and their slaves in heaven worshiping their master. Uh, that makes me praise God. It does not. Um, of course, it grieves me about the conditions of our, our sinful world, but I rejoice all the more that God is both the uh, the redeemer of the slave and the slave owner. Great answer. 
Um, a follow-up question. So I'm, I've been reading a bit on this this topic, um, and it, it a lot of it goes back to postmodernism, uh, which then I assume goes back to modernism. Can you just in simple terms kind of chart out the course of, of the philosophy that's led to social justice? Yeah. Um, you mentioned modernism. So modernism is simply the fruits of the enlightenment, um, which is um, essentially agreeing with God that um, all men are created equal um, and that they have God-given rights. So you have, you know, universalism, you have individualism, you have, um, you know, you have a, you know, like, so for example, America's Declaration of Independence, you know, does it very well where, you know, it talks about the pursuit, it talks about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Um, It has neutrality, impartiality. Um, You know, you have um, especially the idea of justice is blind. The problem with modern with uh, modernism is, though it agreed with God, it did not give Him credit, um, to, to say the least, which, in a sense, leads it to being a bit man centered. Although they were generally right, they were man centered, and that naturally leads to man seeking for truth within himself, which leads to postmodernism, where then. The pursuit of of um, justice is not necessarily by affirming truths from God, but it's by affirming our feelings or, whatever, or our perspectives. So postmodernism essentially teaches that impartiality and truth um, is um, is an illusion that the oppressive group namely white men use against non-white men or, or women. So they believe in that Western society is inherently oppressive because of its um, commitment to, mod- to modernism or Western principles. So um, that leads to um, critical race theory in that it believes that the legal system, our social system, is inherently racist and sexist and transphobic, and that uh, we need to then abolish this idea of impartiality. So to give an example, uh, one of the more uh, prominent anti-racist or critical race theorists or postmodernist thinkers today is a man called Ibram Kendi. And he he says that um, racial discrimination is is wrong, only wrong, if it leads to racial inequity. And by that, he means racial disparities. However, but this is his actual like word for word what he says. However, racial discrimination is good and helpful if it leads to racial equity or racial parity. So that's just pragmatism with racism. Combined. Exactly, exactly. Right. But, but, but at the heart of that, though, is also this idea that impartiality is impossible and wrong, that you are supposed to be partial. You are to favor the weak over the strong. That way, then, in their mind, you can have, you know, a, a balance of power that if you weaken the, the rich and the strong, the elite, the oppressive group, 
then you can bring up the the um the marginalized the oppressed the black the the, the you know the women the the uh, trans you know, the, the transgender people the homosexuals uh which is why postmodernism is leading to all these um offshoots of just denying basic universal truths because it denies all those things um as a reaction against um um in their mind how you have the elites uh, as in again the oppressive white men in their mind uh using uh, the concept of impartiality to keep the marginalized group from seeing um impartiality for what it really is which is oppression so which is why you have the you know you have the idea of being woke to be woke basically means that you are awakened your conscience of what's really happened in this what's what's really happening in the system even though it's covert in that uh, the elites are manipulating and deceiving um again by elites i mean the mostly white cisgender christian men that um they're using the the idea of impartiality to manipulate people to think into accepting oppression as being fair when it's not therefore to be awake is to truly see it for what it is and then to be anti-racist enough to try to abolish that system a follow-up question and i would get stuck if i told people I, was, I, was, I think they term it colorblind i just see people as um, image bearers of god um, and colors just a, a shade on that uh, but i'd be called racist by even christian brothers if i said i was colorblind can you um comment on, on that kind of philosophy yeah and I, I didn't mention that but that's exactly what i'm what i'm addressing because to be colorblind implies what we really mean by that by that is that we are impartial right that mm. now no, no one says no one when we say we're colorblind we're not saying we don't see color we're not saying we don't see people for what they are of course we see that we celebrate god's um, god's design in every way what we mean is as martin luther king jr meant it in that we want to judge people based on their character and not the color of their skin but they disagree with that which is why they push back on that because they believe that you should not be colorblind at all because I remember, as I, I mentioned, Ibram Kendi's quote, they want us to discriminate against, you know, in their mind, the people in power so that, um, you know, the marginalized group in their mind could have more power. Now, some Christians may not be completely aware of the origin of denying colorblind um, ideology, but that is but that is the the natural root of what they're really saying. Thank you. That's uh, very helpful. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I've been reading quite a bit of yours recently. I've got your top 10 books on critical race theory. It's like a bookmark. So I'm just kind of making my way through that. What are, t- what are the top two books you'd recommend people to read on, on this topic? Ooh, that's tough. Can I, okay, can I list two good books? And- you can't list 10 because that's what I'm going off. You've got to limit it to two. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. This is for the Christian. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Fault Lines by uh, Vadi Bokum. Um, and then, see, I want to recommend a bad book so they will know <laughs> what's being said. Okay. It's going to be, it's a book I'm kind of reviewing soon as well. It's a book by Jamar Tisby, uh, How to Be, uh, How to Fight Racism. Ah, nice. I, I thought you were going to say White Fragility. Um, <laughs> and I think it would be, you, you should tell our listeners, uh, what's more enjoyable than, than listening to what <laughs> reading through white fragility. 
Well, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you got me there. I was uh, not expecting that. Um, well, okay. I guess I have to give a background before I, I explain it, but um, I wrote a, re- a book review of uh, white fragility. Um, and in the introduction, I mentioned that when I was young, I once had a, a nail pierced through my foot. How deep was the nail? Oh, three-fourths into into it. So just before it would go through uh, the entire foot. Oh. Um, it was in deep, and it was broken inside. And then this is in Ghana, West Africa, where access to hospitals are not exactly easy. So my mom basically called as I was wailing. I was about uh, six, seven, maybe. As I was wailing, my mom called all the neighborhood tough guys uh, to get a hold of me. And they all grabbed me and pinned me down. And then my incredible mom, um, she goes to, you know, she goes, I don't know, she go finds, um, I'm not sure what it was. I thought it was pliers. But I don't know what it is. She finds anything, any tool she could find in the house. And then as I am fully awake and everything I know, she digs it into my foot and grabs every piece of the nail. It was, bro- it was broken in several parts in- inside. So she grabbed everything and um, poured alcohol right in there. And it was the most excruciating thing I've ever had. I thought until I read White Fragility, which was significant, <laughs> significantly more painful than that nail in my foot. Um, so that was the intro <laughs> to the article. And I guess it, it you know, um, I guess that intro helped people realize how horrible that book is. So I didn't mention that book because I was referring to Jamar Tisby is a professing Christian, um, you know, and, um, you know, I think it helps Christians realize just what's happening in so many Christian circles. But outside of that, yes, White Fragility is a, a book that a lot of people should read to understand what's really happening here, which is it basically says that if you are white, no matter what you do, you're racist. Um, if you try to be an ally, you're racist. If you try to defend yourself of being racist, you're a racist. No matter what you do, uh, she says that it's impossible to have a positive white identity. So it's a very racist book against white people and black people, actually. Which is interesting because it's a white person writing it, yeah, doing quote good things, but exactly. you can't achieve that because you're white. So it's like a self-defeating book. It yeah. Seems. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that story. I I enjoy it. No, you did. I didn't, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if, if I, one more thing that could be helpful, I didn't say it earlier, but there's a book. Ash, I'd encourage you to read it, uh, Toby. It's a book called uh, White Christian Privilege. Oh, yeah. You'll see it on the, I think I mentioned it on the um, that article, which I think is should be fundamental reading for Christians who are trying to understand these issues, where all these issues is not just really about it's not it's really fundamentally an attack against christ and 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 truth so it talks about how christians really are the most oppressive people in the world essentially this book says and yes some christians or some professing christians are pushing this book so these issues these issues are sorry is, is it written by a professing christian author or uh, not? no no uh, she isn't but but some christians or people who claim they're christians are reading the book and enjoying it and promoting it it's amazing, isn't it? The Word of God cuts through a lot of these ideologies and brings us truth. I'm always struck by Colossians chapter 3 that tells us in verse 5 to consider the members of our earthly bodies as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And that's the Apostle giving, the Apostle Paul giving 
a single word of exhortation to a number of different ethnicities and people groups, if we will, because he says there in verse 11 that this is a uh, that there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And so amazing that the Apostle Paul himself didn't give different uh, uh, words of exhortation to the different people groups determining on where they found themselves. Uh, we're all in Adam. Uh, there's obviously one Adamic race. And so you also think of Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, uh, that tells us that Christ uh, himself is our peace, who has made both groups, both ethnic groups, Jewish and all other ethnicities, one by breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that he himself might make the two into one new man and thus establishing peace. And so as believers, the racial reconciliation is through the cross. And so we of all people should be uh, praising God for Christ and seeking to honor Christ. And our heartbeat of our podcast today, Samuel, was in the hope that more and more believers might be enlightened to the dangers of this ideology so thank you so much for your time we really really appreciate it we uh counted a joy to have you on this podcast with us we look forward to um, reading more about what you write we want to encourage our listeners to visit slow to write.com and keep up with all that samuel's doing there so samuel thank you so much uh, for your time we appreciate you immensely brother thank you Thank you. Thank you. No Lasting City Podcast is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church in Hastings, New Zealand. For more information, please visit our website at riverbend.org.nz or visit us on YouTube. Follow us on social media where you can interact with us or ask us any questions. Our links are in the show notes and we'd love to see you there.